Lord, we have much to thank you for tonight. So we begin by thanking you. We, we thank you, Lord, for the fact that uh, we woke up this morning and had another day to walk with you. We, we, a lot of times we, we act as though and we assume that we are going to have another 20, 30, 40 years, but we don't know that for a fact. Every day is a gift from you. And even the difficult days are gifts from you. Um, we, we realize, Lord, that not only have you given us life, but in your providence, you sustain our lives. And you give us exactly what we need when we need it. We're not much different than the children of Israel when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You gave them precisely what they needed when they needed it. Um, we, we would rather not live that way we are more comfortable with surpluses and we are more comfortable with big bank accounts and we are more comfortable with all of our financial ducks in a row. But sometimes, Lord, you put us in situations where we have to trust in you daily to make it. For some of us, we have to trust in you daily physically, not financially, but physically. Because we're dealing with a condition, we're dealing with, um, we're dealing with a health problem that is constantly before us, and we're acutely aware every day when we get up that that day is a gift from you, Father. As um, as we go through life, we want to be under your wing. We want to stay close. We need your wisdom, we need your direction, we need uh, your word, and we need your protection. We need your wisdom. So I pray for each one of us in this room, Lord, that we would get as close to you as we possibly can as we enter into this study. We are, Lord, doing these bios on these kings and as we read the lives of these men, we get concerned because uh, they're guys just like us. And some of them lived lives of foolishness. Others lived lives of wisdom. Not lives of perfection, but of wisdom, of seeking you and of listening to you and of implementing what you said to them. Now, that's what we want to do. We're different places in life. We're different ages. We're dealing with different issues. But what we have in common is that we all need you desperately. So tonight, as we open up uh, the life of Hezekiah, uh, teach us from his life. Teach us from his example. This is a guy that we would like to emulate what he did. He, he was one of the good guys. He was one of the good kings. He was a guy that you were pleased with. We want to live in such a way, Lord, that, um, that, that you pour out your favor upon us, that you don't have to discipline us because we're hard-hearted. Uh, give us teachable hearts. Give us wills that are yielded to you. Give us wisdom to choose the right path that you set before us. 
Instruct us, Lord, by your spirit. Guide us into all truth. We ask these things in the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Years and years ago, Richard Nixon wrote a book called Six Crises. When I was in, uh, when I was in seminary my, my, my first year, uh, there used to be a game show called Split Second. And before I went to seminary, I had a year and a half off where I just worked and I drove a truck in the Bay Area and I was saving money for seminary. And uh, for about six months of that period, they had me working from uh, three to midnight. And one day, I was eating lunch at home, and I turned on this game show called Split Second. And the thing about Split Second was, you know, it was a typical game show. You have three or four guys, and you're all asking questions, and everybody's competing against each other. But the guy that won the show that day, they would walk you over, and there were five new cars. And if you won, you would pick... There were five sets of keys. You'd pick one of the sets of keys, and if you won for that day, you'd pick one of the sets of keys, you'd pick the car you want to sit in, and if you turned the ignition over and it started, you got the car. So I started watching this. And, you know, you start answering questions, and, and uh, I watched it one day, and I'm, I'm, I'm going through the questions, and, and I got a lot of them. And then the next day I started watching, and I, and I, I did pretty well. And... And then the next day I watched it, and I did, I did pretty well. And, it, and then they had a thing, if you're interested in being a contestant. So uh, I was interested in being a contestant because I didn't have anything else to do. I was just driving a truck and trying to save money for seminary. Long story short, I, I called in, and they, you know, they send you this test, and I passed the test. And they called me, you know, you, we, we gotta, can you come to L.A. and do this interview? Well, I only lived, you know, six hours north. So I show up, and I do this thing, and they take you through a game. And one of the questions was, uh, who wrote the book Six Crises? And I said, Richard Nixon. I don't know how I knew that. I never read the book. I just knew that he wrote the book. I think it was right after he said, you won't have me to kick around anymore, when he wrote the book. And I got on Split Second, by the way. I got on the show. I got on the TV show. And... Um, uh, and I was doing really well until they started asking questions about uh, alcoholic drinks, mixed drinks. <laughs> and I didn't know anything about mixed drinks. Because if, if I had ever taken a drink, my dad would have beaten the tar out of me and I wouldn't have lived to be 18. Uh, so that's my game show story. I won uh, 15 yards of Mohawk carpet. <laughs> I did. And... Uh, But I caught up with the, la the lady who was leading. I caught up with her in the bonus round, and we were tied. And there was a last question. And the guy said, look at the screen. And on the screen was a map of Africa, and there was a co uh, uh, an island off the coast of Africa that was highlighted. And he said, and before he even asked the question, he said, this island, and I hit the buzzer. Because it either had to be Malagasy or Madagascar. They had just changed the name. It was one of those two. I hit the button before this woman did. And I said, Malagasy. She said, he said, wrong. She said, Madagascar. She won. 
And I've been bitter and resentful ever since. <laughs> that was a crisis in my life because I really wanted to win one of those cars. And it was my plan that I would win one of those cars. I'd sell the car and pay my way through seminary. You ever get a plan like that and it doesn't work? That's what happened to me. Um, that's what happened to Richard Nixon. He had a plan, and it didn't quite work that way. Sometimes what happens in life is that crises develop in our lives. We're getting ready to look at one of the great kings of Judah. Uh, his name is Hezekiah. Uh, we're passing out charts which give you a rundown and a scenario of the 40 kings. Uh, just to summarize real quickly, most of you guys have been here for this study, you had Saul and David and Solomon, the first three kings. After Solomon, uh, his son took the throne. His son's name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam was such a foolish uh, king, the age of 40 or 41, that in about 72 hours there was a rebellion, and the nation of Israel split into two nations. The ten northern tribes became Israel. The two southern tribes, Judah, along with Benjamin, they were the southern kingdom, and they were based in the capital city of Jerusalem where the temple was. So what we've been doing is we have been looking at the history of the kings in the north and the kings in the south. Twenty kings in the north after Solomon. All of them were wicked. All of them were losers. All of them were men who didn't walk with God. All of them were men who, who quite frankly, led wasted lives. Uh, in the south, of the 20 in the south, Eight could be considered good. Tonight we look at Hezekiah. There is probably, uh, Hezekiah probably gets more uh, ink than any other king besides uh, Jehoshaphat. He is, uh, uh, there is a lot to be learned from his life. And when you read the chapters that are written in uh, 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, about the life of Hezekiah, what begins to emerge, uh, at least to me, is that the story of Hezekiah is centered around not six crises, but four crises. And what we're going to do is, tonight we're going to look at the first crisis. We're going to be looking at Hezekiah over the next, I don't know yet, three weeks, maybe four. We'll see how we do. But there are four crises in the life of Hezekiah. The first crises that he deals with is the one we're going to deal with tonight. Uh, it's what I call uh, the crisis of becoming one's own man. There's a point in life where you have to become not only a man, but you have to become your own man. That's the one we're going to look at tonight. You say, what were the other crises? Well, if you're interested, I'll just tell you in advance. The second crisis that he deals with is the crisis of terrorism. Uh, because the nation is intimidated and terrorized by a superior force that no one else has been able to withstand. We'll deal with that next week. Uh, the third crisis that he deals with is the crisis of sickness and terminal illness. That was a very real episode in his life. Some of you guys are dealing with that. We all deal with that. A lot of us just don't know it. We're all terminal. Is that not right? Of course it's true. Uh, fourthly, he dealt with the crisis of prosperity. See, that's not a crisis. Sure it is. 
Prosperity is a huge crisis in a man's life. Uh, it is more difficult to, to deal with prosperity than it is to deal with being out of work. Now, if you're out of work, you have a hard time with that. Because all you're trying to do when you're out of work, you're just trying to survive. Uh, your mission is real clear. It's survival. But when God gives you a season of prosperity, uh, it is a very, very subtle test because there's so much more at stake. And oftentimes, a man's heart will be turned away from the Lord when there is a period of prolonged prosperity. But tonight, we're going to deal with the whole crisis that he faces. And not only does he face it, did he face it, but we face it. It is the crisis of becoming one's own man. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28, uh, we, we begin the, the biographical sketch of, of Hezekiah. And it begins with his father in chapter 28, verse 1. It says, now Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. What, what, what is wrong with me here? Am I in 29? Okay. Let's try 29. Is it Second Chronicles? Good. And it is in the Bible. Ahaz was his father. Yeah. See, this is why I lost the car that night. This is why I said the wrong answer. I couldn't even find the right, the right chapter. Ahaz was his father. Let's go to Hezekiah in 29. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. I was just looking at my notes, and I wrote down 2 Chronicles 28 for Hezekiah. Just thought I'd share that with you. That's wrong. See, if you'll notice on Sundays, Chuck, Chuck never does anything like this. But I do it on Wednesday nights. I'm just grateful you guys come out. But I'll correct it as soon as I'm aware of it. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. Now, here is, here is the banner that you would write over the life of Hezekiah. We get an evaluation of this guy's life before we read about his life. Here's what it says, verse 2. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. That's a great tribute to this guy. Uh, we've made the point that uh, every one of us in this room, someday we're going to have a funeral service. Someday we're going to have a memorial service. And people are going to get up and they're going to say something about us. Now the question is, what are they going to say? You can make that easy on them or you can make it difficult on them. Uh, if your kids get up and talk about you, the way you live determines whether it will be a privilege for them to get up and talk about you or whether it will be a grievous thing for them to get up and talk about you. Um, you don't want them to get up and be conflicted because you lived uh, two ways. I don't want that. You don't want it. Uh, that's why we have said as we're going through these bios that every day we're writing our own biography. It was said of Hezekiah that he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. Um, his father David had done. It doesn't say all that his father Ahaz had done. Here's something that's interesting about uh, Hezekiah and Ahaz. 
when Hezekiah became king, this was not uncommon um, in, in Israel and Judah, is that when he first became king, his father was still king. And it was a co-regency. He was ruling for a while with his father. Uh, he was being apprenticed under his father. Now, if you were here last week, when we were in Second Chronicles 28, and we looked at Ahaz, and we looked at his father, you know that his father was a wicked man. His father was a godless man. His father was a man who was on the wrong path, going the wrong direction. Prior to Ahaz, in, in Hezekiah's line, there had been four men who were, we would put in the category of good kings. Not flawless, but good kings. Made mistakes, made errors, but they sought the Lord. So in, in Hezekiah's line, his father didn't seek the Lord, but his grandfather did, his great-grandfather and his great-great-grandfather. But his father was an aberration. And at no other time in the history of the nation did you have four kings in a row that were considered good. Uh, Hezekiah walked in the ways of his father, David, going way back. But he didn't follow his father Ahaz. Now what's interesting to me about this is that he was apprenticed by his father. He was under the wing of his father. Uh, He saw his father do some things that quite frankly were against the, the truth and against the law and against the prophets. That put him in a very, very difficult predicament. But then his father dies. And now he is ruling by himself. And you see, this is the crisis. Because at some point for Hezekiah, and at some point for you and for me, we have to become our own man. We have to decide how we're going to live our lives. Uh, Some of us, our fathers were great role models. You're a blessed individual, if that's the case. Uh, Others of you, your father was not a great role model. Uh, Every man has to live his own life. Every man has to make his own decisions. Every man has to write his own biography. When his father died, suddenly he was in charge and he was king and the responsibility was on his shoulders. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us about Hezekiah and what it is that he began to do. It says, in the first year of his reign, in the first month... He opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Now, what's that all about? Uh, Well, if you'll jump up to chapter 28, and you'll notice chapter 28, as we've already found out, is not about Hezekiah, it's about his dad Ahaz. What was it that his father Ahaz had done? If you look at, uh, his his dad got increasingly worse. If you look at uh, verse 22 of 2 Chronicles 28, it says, now, in the time of his distress, this same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. As he got older and older, he became more and more unfaithful. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, and said, because the gods of the king of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. This shows you how nonsensical this guy. Instead of calling out to God after he was defeated, he sacrifices to the gods of the army that came and defeated him. Um, But they became the downfall of him and all Israel. Catch 24. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, the temple was where? Solomon's temple was in Jerusalem where where he lived. 
he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces. Now, why would he do that? And what were the utensils? Remember the Levites, the Levitical priests, were the ones that made sacrifices in the temple. And if you read Leviticus, you'll read about all the regulations and the order in which they were to make the sacrifices and how they were to do that. There were utensils that were made specifically for the purpose of offering sacrifices. He cut them up. Why did he cut them up? Because he didn't need them because he wasn't going to let the Levites in there to worship God and to sacrifice to God because he was following false gods. That's how far this guy went. This guy lost his mind. Not only that, it says in verse 24, he closed the doors of the house of the Lord and made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. He literally closed the temple. He shut it up. He nailed it shut. Nobody could go in because he didn't want anybody worshiping God. This was the man. This was Hezekiah's father. So his dad dies. He's co-regent. Now let's go back and read 29.3. You know, it's a big day. It's a big thing in our country. The first hundred days of a presidency. You know, they always talk about the first hundred days. The first, whatever a guy does and implement, you know. And uh, you find out a lot about what a guy believes, quite frankly, in about his first 24 hours. Don't you? Remember when Clinton took office? And all that he did in the first 24 hours, we found out real quick about him, didn't we? Yeah. A lot of people were real surprised. Because uh, what he started implementing was anti-God and anti-truth and anti-Bible and anti-righteousness. What did Hezekiah do? In the first, look at verse 4 again, please, of 29. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. The first thing he did out of the blocks is that he became his own man. He didn't do what his dad did. And his dad still had cronies around. His dad still had guys, you know, in the Department of Defense and, and you know, HEW and all these different. I mean, these guys were everywhere. All these appointees, all these advisors. These guys were everyday. These guys were lifers. These guys were bureaucrats. They're still all around him. You see? He had guys in his cabinet that had been, you know, in his dad's cabinet. It's like Bush 41 and Bush 43. It, it, when you look at Bush 43, some of his key guys were guys that were with Bush 41. You see? Same thing with Hezekiah. But see, Hezekiah had to become his own man. Years ago, Daniel Levinson wrote a book called The Seasons of a Man's Life. Uh, this book was based on a study that Levis, Levinson did at Yale that was a 10-year study. Uh, it was a stu- they studied a number of men, and they tracked them. And as they tracked these men, they begin to understand that there are, if you ever take a class in early childhood development, you know that there are uh, marked um, uh, chapters, if you will, of life that children go through. Uh, I mean, adolescence is a chapter of life. You know your kid's going to go through it, you see? There are chapters of life. And, and there had been a lot of study done on childhood. This was the first study done on men. And uh, they track guys in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s and their 60s. Um, one of the, one of the um, sections of a man's life that they talk about is, 
is in the 30s. Um, when a man, they have what they call the settling down period. That's what they call the 30s. Settling down. Because do you remember, you remember in your 20s? Do you remember in college? And even when you got out of college and you're not married yet, you're, you know, you're running around, you're trying all this and trying your jobs and all this, and you go to Alaska and you work in an oil well and you, you know, cut off your foot and you do all this stuff. You, you, know, you ride motorcycles into the back of a truck. You know what I'm talking about? That's what you do. But then there's some point, somewhere in your 30s, where you begin to settle down. That's why they call this the settling down. They have, they identified a chapter in the 30s called late settling down. And the subheading for it is becoming one's own man. Let me read what Levison writes. The effort to be more fully one's own person, to be more independent and self-sufficient and less subject to the control of others, is found at many ages. Its form at each age reflects the character of the current developmental period. Um, And he says at different times, men are dealing with this. This issue takes a new form and a central place in the end phase of settling down. This phase is so distinctive that we have given it a name becoming one's own man. It ordinarily extends from about 36 or 37 to 40 to 41. How many of you guys are in that range? Let me see your hands. Okay, that's where you are. You're in a distinct phase. Some of you are making big changes. Some of you are uh, considering big changes. Some of you are thinking about structural changes in your life. What's this all about? It's normal. It's natural. Because, see, you're not a kid anymore. You're, you're getting close to 40. You're getting close to the second half of your life. And what you're doing is you're becoming your own guy. Uh, I remember when I was in my 20s, I wanted to be 40. I couldn't wait to be 40. I mean, I could. I had to. I didn't have any choice. But it seemed to me that 40, by the time you, you hit 40, you know, you, you would learn some things and you'd mature. And when I talk to guys, when I talk to college guys, what I, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do, what I tell them is, I said, life is like a funnel. And as you get older, it narrows down. And, you know, you're 22, you're 24, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do. Uh, as, as you go through your 20s and your 30s, you ought to, you know, you tried everything, but you're discarding. You're discarding. I tried that, and I tried that, and you're getting focused. And as you get towards 40, you want to hit that focused part of the funnel. And you want to be hitting your sweet spot. And you want to be working in an area of strength. And you want to be positioned so that between 40 and 60 and 65, you can make a contribution. You're going to become your own man, you see. That's what, this, that's what this is all about. He says, it represents the culmination of settling down and more broadly, the peaking of early adulthood and the first stirrings of what lies beyond. Um, so what, the, what is this period about? Levinson says, I'll read you one more paragraph. A man's primary developmental task in this phase of life are to accomplish the goals of settling down, to advance sufficiently on his ladder, whatever that might be, to become a senior member of his enterprise, to speak more clearly with his own voice, 
to have a greater measure of authority and to become less dependent internally as well as externally on other individuals and institutions in his life. You're your own man. You're not your father's son anymore. You are in a way, but you're not. This is what happened to Hezekiah. You see, happens to all of us. You're going to establish what path it is that you're going to take. Now, his father at 40 had decided what path he was going to take. He was going to go against what his father and grandfather and great-grandfather did. He was going to go the opposite way. Hezekiah saw his dad get worse and worse and worse. His dad dies in the first year, in the first 30 days, he starts undoing what his father did. I want to give you some ways tonight that Hezekiah became his own man. All right? Here's the first one. He became his own man, number one, and I just mentioned it, by beginning to undo the wicked works of his father. Say that again. He became his own man by beginning to undo the wicked works of his father. If we continue reading in 2 Chronicles 29, we read verse 3. Let's just read down to verse 11. We'll pick up 3 again. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, so there, th- th- this guy came out of the block strong. He opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. They had fallen into disrepair. Quite frankly, the temple uh, for this period of time was, was nothing more than a, than a, than a warehouse. Uh, you know, you go to these different storage facilities. That's basically what the temple that was used for the worship of God had become. They were just storing stuff in there. Things had fallen apart. Things were in disrepair. So he opens it and he repairs them. Verse 4. And he brought in the priest and the Levites. They'd been kicked out. He brought in the priest and the Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. And he said to them, listen to me, O Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch and put out the lamps. They weren't supposed to do that, obviously. They have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, now catch this, Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem. And he made them an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. In other words, we've been judged by God. Now, what's really interesting about this particular statement, I want you to take this chart that you've been given, the divided kingdom of Israel. And go over to uh, the third page, and on the bottom, you'll see Hezekiah. And you'll see the time frame of Hezekiah. He's in the southern kingdom. He's in Judah. Now, if you look just above, what you see is in 722, it says the end of the northern kingdom. If you'll flip the page to page 4, You see the kings of the south listed, but you see absolutely listed, nothing listed in the north. Why? Because in 722, roughly within the time frame, four to seven years after Hezekiah took the throne, what happens is those ten tribes in the north that are called Israel that had 20 wicked kings in a row, 
God judge them finally so that they're taken away, they cease to exist, and they're taken off, and they live in a foreign land, and there are no more kings. They are finished, they are done, because they would not listen to the voice of God, and they are judged as a nation, and they cease to exist. Hezekiah knew what was going on. You see, and he knew that his father was doing exactly what had happened in the north. So at his first opportunity, he shows that he is his own man by following the Lord with all of his heart, repairing the temple, getting the Levites together. Guys, we got to clean this place up. It's time to get back because God will judge us as he's judged our family members in the north. Do you see the significance of this? There was a living lesson just miles up the road in the north. They ceased to exist. So Hezekiah has a great motivation. Um, flip over, if you would, to the account in Kings. Let's go to 2 Kings. Let's go over to 2 Kings uh, chapter 18. Because we're going to get a, 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 another shot at Hezekiah in this book. Look at 18.3. It's talking about Hezekiah. It says, And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. That's familiar with what we just read. Now catch this. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah, this false uh, sexual symbol. He also broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. Now what's this all about? You guys remember when they were in the wilderness? And there was this plague... Moses made the serpent, and they were to look upon it, and they'd be healed. Do you remember that? Well, apparently, this had been preserved. And what happened was, this had become, this in itself, this, what, what, what God told them to look upon to be saved from the plague, this, this had become, quite frankly, it had become an idol. And they were venerating it. And they were worshiping it. You know what's interesting about that? Anything can become an idol. Anything. You know, for some people, a cross is an idol. There are some people that trust more in the fact that they wear a cross around their neck than they trust in Christ. What was the cross about? The cross is that Jesus went to the cross, died for our sins, paid for our sins, that's the point of the cross. Was buried, rose on the third day, ascended to the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father where he lives forever to make intercession. We don't worship the cross. We worship Christ. See, anything can become a symbol. Anything can become an idol if we're not careful. We keep our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says. You see? So here's this, this, this thing that had been used to deliver them, and now they start worshiping this deal. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until the days of the sons of Israel, they'd burned incense to it. Look at five. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. This guy is right at the top. That's only said of one other guy, and it's Josiah, and we'll look at him in a few weeks. They were the two top guys. Out of those 40 kings. Look at verse 6. It explains why he was, he was revered by the Lord. For he clung to the Lord. You guys ever eat a clean peach? You ever go to the store and you know you buy peaches in a can? You can buy, uh, it'll, there are two kinds of peaches. There are more than one kind, but 
There are cling peaches, and there are freestone peaches. Now, what's that all about? Well, you know what it's about. A cling peach, you cut it open, and that stone is really hard to get out because that stone wants to cling to the meat. Sucker's really, really hard to get out of there. You gotta have a knife or something to get it out. So they developed a different kind of peach called a freestone peach. And genetically, they start working with this thing so that it's a peach and it's got a great flavor, but the stone comes out freely. You see? That cling peach, that stone is gonna cling to the peach. That's how we're supposed to live our lives. We're to cling to the Lord. Um, when I was a young pastor, a rookie pastor in California, we had a gal come to the Lord. She was all, she didn't know. She was the first one in her family coming. to she, She'd never been in church. She didn't know anything about anything. She just, Christ had set her free. And she was just thrilled. And a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of zeal. And, and and she said to me, she came up to me, oh, shortly after she came to the Lord. And she said, Steve, I want to be baptized. I said, great. She said, I want to be baptized in the ocean. And I want to invite all my friends and all my family members. Could we do that? And I said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll work it out. So we found a Sunday afternoon, and we go over to Half Moon Bay. And uh, she's got all her friends, and they don't know anything. I mean, they're, you know, I mean, they brought six packs and everything. It was great. They didn't know what the heck was going on. But they showed up because they loved her. I mean, they just didn't know. They didn't have a clue, which was great. And, and uh, so, you know, they're barbecuing burgers and all this thing. We're going to do this baptism. I got, you know, I got Rachel, I think, with me and Josh. They're just real, or John, Josh was born. They're just real tiny kids, you know. And so we're there at the beach. And finally, it was time to do the baptism. Half Moon Bay, uh, the water tends to be cold. And uh, there's a fairly strong, there can be a fairly strong riptide. And, so, and this gal was real small, about five feet. I don't think she weighed 100 pounds. And as we start walking out, and I told her what we were going to do, as we start, she, was really, she wanted to be baptized in the ocean. So we start walking out. And she's, she's real tiny, and, the, you know, serves kind of, she starts, she didn't just grab my hand. I mean, she, she locked onto it. And, 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 and then not with one hand, with two hands. And, and, uh, and I had a shirt on and some cutoffs, and, and, and she started to shake. And I said, are, are, you, are you cold? She said, yes, but I'm really nervous. And I said, well, it's okay. And she said, I don't know how to swim. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my gosh. You don't know how to swim, and you want to be... And you, I mean, you know, these waves are breaking around us and all. And, and I thought, you know, this... I had made an assumption... You've heard that phrase about when you assume. <laughs> and if you haven't, I'll, we'll tell it to you afterwards. But I had a bit of a crisis on my hands, and she was petrified. She literally tore the sleeve off my shirt, clinging to me. I, I was going to go out further, but I just went ahead, and in the name of the Father, I just put her in. Now, if total immersion is required for entrance into heaven, I'm not sure she's going to get in. <laughs> but it isn't required. Faith in Christ is required. Uh, I'll never forget. She clung to me. She tore the shirt off my, off my arm, scratched me. You talk about clinging. 
That's how we're to cling to the Lord. You stay as close to him as you possibly can. You see, but the old hymn says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. See, we think we know better. What does Isaiah say? All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. We think we know better than the Lord. So we tend to wander from the Lord. And what the Lord has to do in so many of our lives is to come into our lives and a crisis has to develop into our lives and we have to get hurt. Some of us physically have to get hurt for us to, comp- for us to begin the settling down process that leads to becoming your own man. And when you're your own man, quite frankly, if you're smart, you're God's man. You see. Hezekiah... In verse 6, he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. You say, what's that all about? Well, his father had become a puppet of the king of Assyria. We're going to get into that next week. That's another crisis. But, But you get a little more read on this guy. He trusted the Lord. He clung to the Lord. He loved the Lord. He listened to the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. That's what this guy did. Not like his dad because he's going to be his own man. At some point, you've got to decide who you are. At some, time, at some point, you've got to decide what you're going to believe. At some point, you've got to decide and I've got to decide how I'm going to live my life. Not how my dad lived, not how my grandpa, my great-grandpa. How am I going to live my life? How am I going to write my biography? What, what are the things that are important to me? What are the decisions that are significant to me? What are the goals that I have in life? What are the things I want to do while I'm on this earth? You see? That's what this guy's all about. Um, jump up to verse 9 of 2 Kings 18, because it tells us about the kings of the north and Israel, the northern kingdom, coming to an end. Now it came about in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. That Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. So he comes against these guys, this real powerful Assyrian king. And at the end of three years, so they got this siege going on. You've seen, you know, the old movies and all that. They siege these places and all that and... They got catapults and they're doing this. That's what was happening. Three years, it was horrible. At the end of three years, they captured it in the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel. Samaria was captured. That kingdom ceased to exist. And what's happening in the southern kingdom? Hezekiah is on the throne. And he's saying, Lord God, we don't want that to happen to us. We want you to prosper. We want you to bless us. We want your hand upon us. We want you to be honored in our nation. And he grieved over what had happened to his cousins in the north. <sighs> All right, he became his own man because he began to undo the works of his father. Let me give you a second one. He became his own man by cleansing the temple. Let's go back to Second Chronicles 29. He became his own man by cleansing the temple. In 2 Chronicles 29, and we've already seen that he pulled the Levites together. And he tells these guys what they're going to do. In, in, um, <clears throat> he gives them very, very specific directions 
uh, our fathers have been unfaithful, etc. That's in three down through nine. Uh, I, I've been reading recently about uh, Harry Truman. Some of you guys remember Harry Truman. Some of you guys went to high school with Harry Truman. Uh, I knew a little bit about Truman, not a whole lot. Um, what I read, I, I like Truman. Guy was a leader. Uh, he was his own man. Uh, he was vice president under a man who many thought could never be replaced, was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, he was just a storekeeper in Missouri. When World War I broke out, he was 33 years old. And you know what he did? He left his store, and he left his fa family, and he went to fight in World War I. He didn't have to. He wasn't drafted. Because guys that age, you didn't have to go. But you know what? He was a leader, and he felt it was the right thing to do. So he went ahead, and he went. Back cover story. He worked tirelessly at earning the loyalty of his men. Typical was an incident in which, encountering an enlisted artilleryman who had injured his ankle, he dismounted from his horse and invited the man to ride. A colonel passing by did not like the sight of an officer on foot and an enlisted man riding. He ordered the soldier to immediately dismount. Captain Truman stopped the soldier, turned to the colonel, and said, You can take these bars off my shoulders, but as long as I'm in charge of this battery, this man's going to stay on that horse. The colonel turned away. The soldier rolled on, and Harry Truman walked with his men. That's a leader. That's a leader. I like Truman. Uh, guy had some guts. He was his own man. He knew what he believed. He took, over, he took over from FDR, and FDR had basically, when he was the vice president, kept him in the dark. Wasn't close to him. Didn't bring him in. I mean, he was basically, when he took the presidency, he was a rookie, and he had some unbelievable challenges uh, that were before him. Um, I shouldn't read this, but I'm going to. Um, Marvin Olasky is uh, editor of World Magazine. Can you guys read World Magazine? You see your hands? Oh, that's tragic. You know, you guys got to find out about World Magazine. World Magazine is the fourth largest news magazine in the world. Behind Time and Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report, and then comes World. It's written by evangelicals. It's an excellent magazine. Uh, it's wonderful. Marvin Olasky is one of the editors. He's also a prophet at the University of Texas. But in 1971, he was a student at Yale. So was uh, John Kerry. And so was a guy named Gary Trudeau. Now, Gary Trudeau, we know because he writes, he, he draws a cartoon strip called Doonesbury. Uh, he started doing Doonesbury when he was on the student paper at Yale in 71. Uh, Olasky posted this today on his website. Uh, it's a strip from October 21st, 1971. There are four panels. First panel shows two Yale students in the courtyard at Yale. One guy says to the other guys, he goes, hey, John Kerry of the Vietnam Vets is speaking at the auditorium. Do you want to go? And outside of the box, a voice says, you better go. In the next box, a guy walks in 
to talk to the two guys. He says, if you care about this country at all, you better go listen to that John Kerry fellow. He speaks with rare eloquence and astonishing conviction. If you see no one else this year, you must go see John Kerry. And then the guy turns and walks off. And the two guys look at each other, and one guy says, who was that? The other guy says, John Kerry. I really like that. <laughs> Truman wasn't like that. Truman didn't build up himself. Truman didn't talk about himself. Uh, Truman just tried to do what was right. And in fact, he, he was so committed to doing what was right that a phrase developed, a popular phrase, and they'd say, they'd see him and they'd say, anybody know what they'd say to him? They'd say, give him hell, Harry. Give them hell. You know what Truman said in response to that? He said, I never did give anybody hell. I just told the truth, and they thought it was hell. <laughs> I really like that. Something else from Truman. The reason I'm reading this is that, in some ways, he reminds me of Hezekiah. In the fact that he became his own man. Now, you'd agree with everything this guy did? No, obviously not, because he's just a man. Listen to this. He says, the thing a president has to do in order to meet a situation, in my view, is to read the law, read the constitutional background for that law, and make up his mind what he wants to do, and tell the lawyers what he wants to do, and have them find a legal way to do it. If they don't, do it anyhow, and they'll find the legal way. He's not going to be illegal because that's important to him. Because it has to be done according to the law. He's going to read the Constitution. You know what Hezekiah did? Hezekiah became his own man, secondly, by cleansing the temple. What he did is he went back and Hezekiah read the Constitution. He read the Word of God. What does the Word of God say the word of God says that temple's to be open. The priests, the Levites, are to be making sacrifices. So he begins to implement the word of God. Doesn't matter what the advisors say. Doesn't matter what the guys from his dad's cabinet said. He begins to do what's right and take action to honor the Lord. You know, God has placed us all in different positions. God's assigned you to a post. He's assigned me to a post. Um, and I believe that for each of us, God wants us to be a leader in that post. We're different kinds of leaders. Some of us are more outspoken than others. Uh, some of us uh, are more laid back and we're more quiet. Um, I don't know your position. I, you know, All I know is that God... God has assigned you to a post. Uh, what God has done is that he, he, you may be the only guy at your post, you may be the only guy at your place of work who's a Christian, who's a believer. Um, Jesus said that we are salt. It doesn't take a lot of salt uh, to make an impact. But he spreads us out where he wants us to be. What Hezekiah did is that Hezekiah immediately began to be a leader. He began to be his own man. When I say that, he was God's man. 
And not only does he undo what his father did, but he immediately cleanses the temple so that God can be worshipped. You know what I think? I think God calls you and me at our post uh, in an appropriate way, in a way in that he will lead us. I think he's always calling us to cleanse that temple. You say, well, how does that work? You say, Steve, I'm having a tough time figuring out how that might be because, you see, I do this or I do that or I... And that's a good question. Because how it is, you say, well, how could I do that? How could I be used by God in what I do? And I think that's a great question. And you know, I think what you do is you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be used. But how in the world could you ever use me? I mean, I, I don't preach and I don't go. See, how could you use me? I want to be used, Lord. I want to be an instrument for you. Because we've got a nation that's falling apart. I, I would love to be used by, well, how do you do that if you're a welder? Or how do you do that if, if you're a sales guy? You say, well, I'm not sure God can, he can use you. He can use you. You know what just cracks me up? See if I can find this. And I'm not doing real well so far. I'll tell you what cracks me up. Is that God would use an actor. An actor. I think God has a sense of humor. Because if anybody would have a hard time being used by God, I would think. If anybody would have a hard time making an impact to cleanse where it is that they've been posted, to me, it would be an actor in Hollywood. Um, You guys get my drift? Because if you're a man of God, because you see, Hollywood is anti-God. They're anti-truth. They're anti-righteousness. They're anti-purity. They're anti-holiness. All they want to do is make movies and go to awards and award themselves. Do you know anybody that has more awards than actors giving themselves awards? Why? Because they're self-possessed people. That's all they can see. So God takes this guy who's been real successful. And you know, I'm talking about Mel Gibson. And you know, a few years ago, Gibson was considering suicide. He'd been raised to know the truth. And, and, and you, know what he, you know what he did? He decided, and, and, and he has Roman Catholic background, and his father's a very conservative, and he's been attacked because of his father. You know what he did? He became his own man. And he had to decide what it is that he believed about Jesus. And he's made a film about Jesus. He hasn't made a film about the Virgin Mary. He hasn't made a film about the Pope. He hasn't made a film about the saints. He hasn't made a film about Mother Teresa. He's made a film about the Lord Jesus Christ. In the middle of Hollywood. It just cracks me up. I think it's great. And you know what's happening? And, and you, you heard Chuck talk about it a couple weeks ago. I got an email. And this is from a guy who was an anchor on a station here in Dallas. Now, if I gave you his name, you'd know him. I haven't been able to validate with him that this is the review he wrote. I talked to the second-in-command guy, but I'm not comfortable quoting this, telling you his name until I can get affirmation on it. I won't get it till the morning. But I think it's legit, and I got it from another pastor. Um, 
Can I read this to you? Because what I want to say to you is, is that here's an example of a guy. To me, the least likely guy that God is going to use to cleanse a temple that has been defiled and to cleanse a nation is an actor in Hollywood. I'm just telling you, that's my take on it. You know what I'm saying? Here's what this anchor wrote, all right? He went to the screening at Prestonwood recently. He said the screening was on the first night of Elevate, a week-long um, seminar for young people at Prestonwood Baptist in Plano. There were about 2,000 people there, and the movie was shown after several speakers had taken the podium. It started around 9 and finished around 11. So I reckon the film is about two hours in length. Frankly, I lost complete track of time, so I can't be sure. I want you to know that I started in broadcasting when I was 13 years old. I've been in, business, in the business of writing, performing, uh, production, and broadcasting for a long time. I've been a part of movies, radios, TV, stage, and other productions, so I know how things are done. I know about soundtracks and special effects and makeup and screenplays. I think I've seen just about every kind of movie or TV show ever made, from extremely inspirational to extremely gory. I read a lot, too, and have covered stories and scenes that still make me wince. I also have a very vivid imagination, and I have the ability to picture things as they must have happened or to anticipate things as they will be portrayed. I had also seen an enormous amount of footage from Gibson's film, so I thought I knew what was coming. But there is nothing in my existence, nothing I could have read, seen, heard, thought, or known that could have prepared me for what I saw on the screen last night. This is not a movie that anyone will like. I don't think it's a movie anyone will love. It certainly doesn't entertain. There isn't even the sense that one has just watched a movie. What it is, is an experience, uh, a level of primary emotion that is scarcely comprehensible. Every shred of human preconception or predisposition is utterly stripped away. No one will eat popcorn during this film. Some may not eat for days after they've seen the film. Quite honestly, I wanted to vomit. It hit me that hard. I, I can see why some people are worried about how the film portrays the Jews. They should be worried. No, it's not anti-Semitic. What it is, is entirely shattering. There are no winners. No one comes off looking good except Jesus. Even his own mother hesitates. As depicted, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day merely do what any of us would have done and still do. They protected their perceived place, their sense of safety and security, and the satisfaction of their own rightness. But everyone falters and judges. Caiaphas judges. Peter denies. Judas betrays. Simon the Cyrene balks. Mark runs away. Pilate equivocates. The crowd mocks. The soldiers laugh. The centurion still carries out his orders. And as Jesus fixes them all with a glance, they still turn away. The Jews, the Romans, Jesus' friends, they all fall. Everyone except the principal figure. Heaven sheds a single mighty tear, and as blood and water spew from his side, the complacency of all creation is eternally shattered. The guy writing this does the news here in Dallas. This guy can write. Listen to this. The film grabs you in the first five seconds and never lets go. The brutality, humiliation, and gore is almost inconceivable. 
and still it probably doesn't go far enough. The scourging alone seems to never end, and you will cringe at the sound and splatter of every blow, no matter how steely your nerves. Even those who have known combat or prison will have trouble, no matter their experience, because this man was not conscripted. He went willingly, laying down his entirety for all, it is one thing for a soldier to die for his countrymen. It's something else entirely to think of even a common man dying for those who hate and wish to kill him. But this is no common man. This is the king of the universe. The idea that anyone could have or would have gone through such punishment is unthinkable. But this man was completely innocent, completely holy, and paying the price for others. He screams as he's laid upon the cross, Father, they don't know, they don't know. What Gibson has done is to use all of his considerable skill to portray the most dramatic moment of the most dramatic events since the dawn of time. There is no escape. It's a punch to the gut that puts you on the canvas, and you don't get up. You are simply confronted by the horror of what was done, what had to be done, and why. Throughout the entire film, I found myself apologizing. What you've heard about how audiences have reacted is true. There was no sound at the film's conclusion, no noise at all. No one got up. No one moved. The only sound one could hear was sobbing. In all my years of public life, I have never heard anything like that. I told many of you that Gibson had reportedly reshot the ending to include more hope through the resurrection. That's not true. The resurrection scene is perhaps the shortest in the entire movie, and yet it packs a punch that can't be quantified. It is perfect. There's no way to negotiate the meaning out of it. It's simply ask, now, what will you do? Now, when I read that, I thought, here's a guy that had everything, that had made it to the top of the heap, It was ready to take a gun and blow his brains out just a few years ago. But he turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and he said, Lord, I give you my life. And then he asked the Lord, he said, Lord, would you use me? And God's going to use the guy. And I'll tell you what else. The world hates him. They hate his guts. Brokaw doesn't like it. Katie Couric doesn't like it. Jennings doesn't like it. Rather, none of them like it. Why? Because he's lifting up Jesus Christ. In a, do you see guys what I'm saying? In, in a sense, God's taking a guy who's yielded his life, and God's using him to become his own man and to use the gifts that God's given him in order to cleanse where he lives. I think God wants us to do that. I think he wants you to do it. I mean, and you know what? We're not going to do it in the same way. We're, it's not going to be that much notoriety. Quite frankly, you don't want that. The heat that's on this guy is unbelievable. So you might put him on your prayer list. Because I'll tell you something. The enemy will go after this guy. And he'll go after his children. He'll go after his family. That's just how the enemy works. Turn with me to Psalm 101. Would you please? Psalm 101. Verse 3. 
So see, what are you talking about here? You gotta, you gotta cleanse the temple. I'm not a king. I don't. We, when we started this, we said every man is king of his own castle. You got a home. I've got a home. You're the king of your house. Your wife's the queen. Your kids are the subjects. All right. That's your responsibility. That's your little kingdom. You'll answer to the Lord how you lead your family and how you run your family. Psalm 103. Psalm. I'm having trouble tonight. Let's try Psalm 101. Look at Psalm 101. Look at the end of two and the beginning of three. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless things before my eyes. So what's that about? You know what that's about? That's about cleansing your castle. That's about cleansing your temple. In my own home, I'll walk with integrity. In my own home, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. And your home is just like my home. There is, a, there is a black cable that runs into the back of a screen that comes into your house that brings in the most unimaginable filth that anyone could ever imagine. Now, are you going to watch that when your wife and your kids are around? Nah. You going to watch it at Thanksgiving? You going to watch that at Christmas when they're opening the presents? No. You're going to open, you're going to watch it when nobody's around. You see. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart, and I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Uh, <clears throat> it's a sad day for us all because Sex in the City is going off HBO. Or, as a friend of mine refers to it, sluts in the city. If you've never seen it, God bless you. It's the story of three or four young women that are just absolute sluts and sleep around and are just absolutely vile and worthless and despicable creatures. It's really a sad thing. That's going off the air. Showtime is premiering a new um, series. And uh, last night, one of the stars was on Jay Leno. Then I switched over and on Charlie, uh, what's his name? Not Charlie Hustle, that's Pete Rose. Charlie Rose. Pete Rose. Charlie Rose. Charlie Rose. They're cousins. Yeah, I don't know who they are. But Charlie Rose, if you've ever seen him, he has that table and, and you know, there are no lights. He can't afford lights. It's just dark. And he's got four or five women, and they're on the same show as this girl over on Leno's on. And it's this new show, and I think it's called The L Word. And it's going to be a new show that's about these beautiful, high-class lesbians. And that's what it's about. And I'll tell you something, it's going to go through the roof. And, and at the end, and they were talking about, you know, the producers of Showtime are so brave and they're to be so commended. And Charlie just shook his head and said, yes, they are. Yes, they are. Great success for you all. What, what debauchery. So what's it going to be in 10 years, guys? You see? You know what? God's always looking for some guy who will be his own man, and who will cleanse the temple. You see? That's what he's looking for. He's looking for a guy that will cling to him, that will love him, and that will follow him. And say, you know, Lord, I used to do that. I used to walk down that path. I'm not going to do it anymore. I want to walk with you. I want to follow you with my whole heart. I want to be your guy. I want to be your, I want to be your man. I got some other stuff on Hezekiah. Um, let me just give you two more, and then I'm going to pray, all right? Because it all, it, it, it just shows you the initiative this guy took. Um, he became his own man, 
Thirdly, by working with a team of godly men. That's 2 Chronicles 29, 12 through 19. He got 14 men, and with them, these Levites, they led the nation in worship, and they led the nation in initiating worship of God. The men did. This guy was a leader. It's not your wife's job to set the spiritual temperature. It's your job. My next one is, he became his own man because he led the nation in worship instead of idolatry. That's 2 Chronicles 29, 17 through 36. And then 2 Chronicles 30 is my next one. He became his own man because he led them by attempting to reconcile the entire family, all 12 tribes. He reached out to those in the north that were still there, and he said, you come, and as we open the temple to worship and to sacrifice and to celebrate the feast, would you come and join us? And among those who were left, they, they laughed and they scorned, but some came. He, you know what he was? He was a man of God. And let me, let me end with this, guys. Men of God, when they're walking with God, they always take the initiative in reconciling their families. Every family has issues. Every family has situations where people don't see eye to eye and people don't get along and, and there are difficulties. But every family needs a man that will take the initiative to bring the family together. So you got two kids that aren't talking to each other? You need to take the initiative. you got a daughter that won't talk to you for some reason. She's been hurt. You need to take the initiative. Don't wait for her. You take the initiative. You see, that's being a man. That's being a leader. That's being a godly king. Because God is, God is well pleased when his people dwell together in harmony and unity. Satan wants to divide our relationship. Satan wants to get a wedge between you and your wife. Satan wants to get a wedge between you and your kids. And you know if a wedge is there. Don't you wait, and I'm speaking to myself, don't, don't you wait for them to approach you. You take the lead. You're the king. You're the man that God has called to. This isn't a trick question. I think I may have said this a couple weeks ago. Who sinned first, Adam or Eve? It's not a trick. Eve sinned first, right? Then she enticed him. When God came looking for them in the garden, they hid themselves. And by the way, God knew where they were. You know what I mean? But when he came looking for them, who did he call out to? Adam. But she had sinned first. You know why he called out to Adam? Because he's head of the relationship. It's your job. It's my job to reconcile your tribes. It's your job to mediate. It's your job to initiate. And God is well pleased. Every family is a small civilization. Every family is a small kingdom. There's a verse in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 14. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. Let's be Hezekiah. Let's follow the Lord with all our heart. Let's cleanse our homes. Let's cleanse our castles. Let's cleanse our temples and honor him. Let's pray.
Lord, we're so grateful that tonight we're not studying the Koran or the writings of Lao Tzu. Uh, we're studying your word. How privileged we are to have the Bible and how privileged we are to have these biographies of these men who lived 3,000 years ago. Lord, we're, we're living today and we want to live well and we want to live wisely. All of us, Lord, have been down the wrong path, and all of us have gotten involved in uh, things that, uh, quite frankly, uh, were, were dirty and were evil, and uh, we're just kind of, uh, we're just, we're almost sick, Lord, over that path that we have walked down. We can get physically ill thinking about it. Um. Lord, we'd like to walk on on your path. Thank you for calling us to yourself. And Lord, there may be a guy here. um, This is all new to him. And and he's tired of how he's been living, and he's tired of, uh, of the debauchery and the price that he has paid. And he's looking for a new life, and he's looking for forgiveness. And I pray that you would reveal yourself to him. And as he calls out to you, you'll come into his life.